Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I have uh, Professor Aaron Kaplan. Uh, We're going to be talking about ecological processes in photosynthetic organisms. Um, It's going to be pretty niche niche stuff. One thing we were discussing offline is uh, desert biological soil crusts. So we'll get into that and uh, one other issue. So, Aaron, thank you for coming. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Hope the same for you. Yeah. Well, first, uh, a few definitions. What is a a biological soil crust? What's the job of it? What does it look like? And what does it do? Well, when we walk on the dunes and the desert, we do see something like a crust covering the dunes. The thickness of the crust depends on the activity of the organisms. Basically, it is formed by a filamentous cyanobacteria, also frequently named blue-green alga. They excrete polysaccharides that adhere the soil grains, so that you you get the, you get a crust kind of. Now, the crust is uh, physically is very complex, though it may look very simple. It, it is complex with with the what I may refer to as tunnels of it, uh, moving light in, uh, breaking the light into the into the crust and changing the local environment. This is essentially one of the harshest habitats on Earth. Uh, the productivity there is quite high, depending on the time. Now, the organisms undergo very frequent, uh, daily, almost uh, hydration dehydration cycles. And uh, it is the vegetative cells that undergo the hydration mostly by early morning dew and then desiccation. The soil temperature can easily reach 60 centigrade or so, and they really dry out almost completely. So we, we looked at the, at the mechanisms that is this organism acquired to, to uh, essentially proliferate to, in this environment. And uh, among the other organisms that we isolated is a small green alga. Now, we often tell the students that organisms that acquired ability to cope with, with stress, with a certain stress, they do pay a price. It is in the textbooks, for instance, that uh, they will they grow slower and perform much slower than other organisms, other similar organisms under optimal conditions. But the green alga that, that we des- either- oh, Quick question, what deserts? Is this like the Negev desert or what? Yes. Where you, okay. This one was isolated right between the, the Israeli, the, close to the border between Israel and Egypt. And the, there is a dune area there that we isolated the organism from. Now, kind of, the, uh, plants grow there that, that use these crusts. Is it, so the crust is not coming from the plant <laughs> itself, but it's coming from 
symbiotic, symbiotic organisms or like who's making the crust? Where does it appear? The crust is formed, as I mentioned, by, by the cyanobacteria, but, but the, it, as it develops and it, it gets thicker and thicker, more and more organisms are there. Plenty of different uh, heterotrophic bacteria that make their living on the, on the products uh, excreted by the cyanobacteria. This, the cyanobacteria is the pioneer and, and the main primary producer. It is, it is the, the guys that make, make, make the job. They, they, they produce the carbon skeletons. They produce the carbons used by, by other organisms. They fix nitrogen and uh, they, they, they form the, the proteins. So everybody else is making it, it's living on this cyanobacteria. But what, what I'm like, what does the crest look like versus, is it all around the, so is a top layer of sand around a plant all composed of crust or what does it look like? Not only around the plants, all over. It's, is a, there's a large variability in the structure of the crust and the, and the large variability in the in the organisms inhabiting the crust, the special and, and temporal. So it is it is found in all the deserts around the world. It covers uh, quite a bit of of, of uh, space, and it is considered to to be quite quite productive in some parts of the world. Yeah, might yeah. think that there's just bare desert, but the entire surface of the desert actually is composed of a biological crust? Uh, it depends where the, the, the importance of the crust, socio-ecologically speaking, is that it raises the shearing energy required to move the sand. And consequently, it is the, the, the more developed it is, it is the best way to combat so-called desertification, for instance, which is the movement of the sand in Southern Sahara, for instance, and leading to large migration of people because of the, of the you know, destruction of the crust. This is a very known, well-known phenomena that, that uh, when the crust is, is scrambled by, by, the, by the herds of the Bedouin or other people, uh, you get far more sandstorms uh, all over the world. In China, for instance, in Beijing, there are quite a number of days that you can hardly see somebody standing a few meters from you because of sand crust, sand storms. And the Chinese spend billions of dollars to in attempts to stabilize the, the crust, and they did pretty well job by, by spreading the cyanobacteria all over the, the, the country in the desert there. It's a huge effort was done there. These crusts initially form. Uh, as I mentioned, it is formed by by the adhesion of the same particles to the polysaccharides excreted by the cyanobacteria. That's that's assume that uh, there's nothing living except maybe a few stray animals in you know in sand desert. It seems like there's just nothing there. You know? No, no, it's there's a lot there. Oh. There's a, quite a number of different bacteria and classes and also quite a number of animals there. But what I'm adding to is something else, which is, I think, fascinating because we, over there, we isolated a green alga uh, that uh, it is the fastest growing photosynthetic organism ever reported. It is, um, you know, if you grow some plants, 
in your balcony and uh, it gets some sun, it gets burned. There is a, this is a process so-called photo damage, photo inhibition, photo destruction, whatever. And if you read, if you read the, the literature, the, the people that studied it for the last 50 years or so would tell you that it is an inevitable process, uh, destro destroying the uh, one of the reaction photosynthetic reaction centers. Now, this chlorella is completely resistant to photo damage, and uh, it took us quite a bit of, you know, convincing our colleagues that this is, in fact, the case. It doesn't undergo photo damage, no photo inhibition. And we even took genes from this chlorella and placed it in, in, a, mo in a model plant, higher plant, making it far more resistant to photo damage. So... Here is an organism isolated from, from harsh environments that can do something for the, for the benefit of man, mankind. So when you say it's a very fast uh, photosynthetic organism, how fast and how do you determine speed? What's the metric? You measure, you measure the growth rate and you can measure either the number of the cells, the amount of protein, you can measure how much chlorophyll accumulates. Chlorophyll is the green color of, of plants that absor absorb the light energy. You can do quite a number of different things. You can measure the amount of DNA. You can quite a number of, of parameters. Generation time of this organism is two hours or less. It is as fast as, as a budding yeast that people use for various purposes. Uh, if you compare it to other alga, a, for instance, a, a model organism often used so-called chlamydomonas. Its generation time under the best conditions is between six to eight hours. In algal growth facilities, you normally get one doubling a day. And this, this chlorella that I named a chlorella wadi after Professor Yitzhak Oad, a dear friend of mine and one of the pioneers in photosynthesis research. Uh, that does four to five du duplication a day. So in algal growth facilities, it is uh, quite fascinating. Um, some of the uses, you said you've merged it with a, um, a higher plant. Like how much uh, more efficient was the plant or how much faster did it grow? Well, we didn't go so far to how faster it is, but it is far less sensitive to high light intensity the high illumination, um, and that some, some may take over to, to core plants, and uh, in the future, I expect it to be used there and to reduce the sensitivity of, of, photos, of core plants to, to high, high illumination. You know, if you take a corn plant, then the, when the plant develops, the, the top layers, the top leaves, Say they, they, they experience a very high light intensity. Then they get shaded by the, by the next generation of leaves produced. But originally speaking, they, they, be, they, are, they, are, they sense they, they, they're exposed to very high illumination, and then they got, get into a shaded area covered by other leaves. So the plant must, must be quite flexible to change the photosynthetic machinery 
to adopt the changing light intensity, and there has been a lot of studies on these aspects. Well, in growing conditions, I know they vary tremendously around the world, but how often is there a situation where the intensity of the sun is too much that starts to destroy the canopy? Oh, you, you, it's well depends where you are, but in large parts of the of the globe, the light intensity is far higher than the plant can deal with. And uh, there is a, a destruction of a so-called protein D1 at the center of photosynthetic reaction number two. And this is number two, though it is the first one that, that kicks the electrons. It is named two. I often say that it is only to, to confuse the students. But but uh, destruction of this reaction center is a major cause of the of decline of the rate of photosynthesis and growth under high illumination. Yeah. So have you gotten to the point where uh, implementing okay. this into a plant? Have you? Does it have different uh, growth characteristics? Does it just form, you know, an initial set of canopy leaves, and it doesn't form that, subsequent leaves below was, it? Or? That wasn't tested yet. That is only in. A, was uh, examined in, in Arabidopsis plants, so-called. It is a model plant often used in, in genetic uh, experiments in plants, but it wasn't on, on plants yet. It wasn't tested in the field yet. There is one other complication. It's a GMO, genetically modified plant, and we have to stay uh, with, with the, you know, protected greenhouses and things like that. These experiments were only initiated, but I cannot report yet the results. It's, but it will go there for sure. Interesting. So, what what are the yeah. uses do you envision? Um, what about the uh, you know the efficiency, the photosynthetic efficiency? Do you think that this will increase that? Because I've heard you know around the world the average is like one percent for most plants. It will raise the the crop production. The extent would depend where you are and what light intensities you are exposed to and which plant you are talking about. So I I won't I won't draw a number of the in the, in this table as yet. It is too early to tell. It is lab experiments and field experiments do look different in many many cases. So I won't be I would like to be cautious on that. But uh, from lab experiment, it does look very good. So this is one aspect I'm interested in. And I would like to talk okay. to you about the languages that the organisms are using, because this is quite exciting, I think, as well. Yeah, what do you mean the languages that they're using? Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. It is, you know, they. you look at the drop of water, or you look at the lake, you look at the pool, whatever you look at, there are quite a number of different organisms there. And every once in a while, somebody is taking over and you get what we name a bloom. Uh, this is a large rise in the, in the population, a large change in the dynamic of the population. Now, the organisms excrete a large number of secondary metabolites. So what are secondary metabolites? Those are the metabolites that are not part of the main biochemical pathways, namely carbon metabolism, nitrogen metabolism, forming forming proteins, et cetera, et cetera. But those are side tracks kind of, 
But if you take a cell of bacteria in, in, in a bloom, a blue-green alga in a bloom, and those intensified uh, quite severely over the last uh, decade or so, for a reason not really understood, we can go back to it and uh, if you wish, but uh, they, they produce a large array of, of secondary metabolites. Some of them are toxic. Uh, you may have heard about toxic cyanobacteria blooms uh, in, in, in Ohio, in Florida, along the Mississippi River. The beaches were are closed, people are warned. The Erie Lake, uh, one of the large lakes in Toledo City, got disconnected from water supply, not to mention the situation in China and other places. So the question is, in my view first, is what is the biological role of these secondary metabolites that are some of which are, are toxic? And uh, for instance, the, one of them is a so-called cylindrospermopsin, never mind the name. And uh, it turned out that the organisms that produce it excrete it to the water and what they do, what, what the, the metabolite does is induce the formation of a, a formation and excretion of a protein that cleave phosphate from organic, from organic materials. And consequently, the organism is able to use phosphate, which is quite often a limiting nutrient in the water body. And the students that did work uh, named the paper uh, Enslavement in the Water Body because the organisms that produce the cylindrospermopsin thereby uh, raise the supply of phosphate uh, because it enslaves other organisms to, to produce the alkaline phosphatase, which is the protein that clears the phosphate and then it can grab it from the water quite efficiently. So this is one of the, of the languages. If well, which, you, uh, what, what, what organism compels or enslaves another organism? Which, which organisms are involved? Is it plants or is it algae or what? Yeah, it is a blue-green alga. It's, it's cyanobacteria. It is, it is a filamentous cyanobacteria, so-called phanizominon. Uh, which became, which is a, there was a very, very strong bloom of that uh, in the Sea of Galilee back in 1994, when I got a phone call from the Ministry of Science in Israel, if I will be willing to look into it, and uh, ever since I'm playing with it, it is, it has, well, I'll put it this way, organisms from, from east to bacteria, when they face a phosphate limitation, they activate a regulon, a, a bunch of genes, so-called foregulon, with one of the genes there encoded a, a alkaline phosphatase. Alkaline, this alkaline phosphatase is excreted to the water and, and a cleave phosphate from organic uh, substances, making it more available for the, for the phytoplankton. So Rather than excreting a large amount of proteins, what this aphanizomenon does is form cylindrospermopsin. The price of making it is much smaller than making the alkaline phosphatase. 
excrete the cylindrospermops into the water and organism, other organisms such as green algae, for instance, like Chlamydomonas, start producing alkaline phosphatase and excreting it even though it has ample supply of phosphate. It is not limited by phosphate, but the cylindrospermopsin induces the formation of this alkaline phosphatase. Was I clear? Or? Yeah, that's more clear. Well, what, what do you think is the... Um is the reasoning what do you, what is it signaling in the um, you know the slave organism that it needs oh, to we, create abundance of this what do you think uh, it's doing yeah we, if you follow we know we know the sequence of events and uh, i won't go into the the exact molecular uh, you know sequence and network but at the end of the day uh, if you add cylindrospermopsin to a culture of Chlamydomonas or many other green algae or, or other cyanobacteria as well, and you and you follow the gene expression pattern, there is a, it 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 is a, it is sensed as a stress as a faucet stress and activate the foregulon in that Chlamydomonas, for instance, and excrete. Uh, alkaline phosphate, despite the fact there is ample of phosphate outside. So it, yeah, is, it, is a, it is a signaling molecule that, uh, that the organism sends as a signal. Uh, for instance, another, in, another toxin, uh, mycocystin, which is, which is one of the worst toxins in the water bodies, it has two, two biological roles. Uh, one of them is telling the organisms that the, that the population is under oxidative stress and, and it activates the formation of, of mycocystin in, in within, the popul- within the mycocystis population. Or maybe I'll put it more, cl- more clearly. Mycocystin is formed by mycocystis cells. These are a, a cyanobacterium, a blue-green alga. When uh, some of the cells lies due to a stress, mostly oxidative stress. The appearance of mycocystin from out, outside the cell is sensed by the other cells, by the cells that experience the mycocystin in the environment to activate a stress response. One of the, one of the pathways is a large induction of the genes that form the mycocystin itself. So it raises the, the level of mycocystins. Now, the other, the other biological role of mycocystin is to bind to protein as, and protect them against oxidative stress. Now, this is just a, another dogma that was, was turned wrong for quite a number of years, people were were claiming that that this toxin, mycocystin, is evolved as a way against a pred, pred, predation. Yeah, but the phenological analysis clearly indicated that it evolved. It it is with us well before the eukaryote cells, well before the predators. It, so how it, how can this sensing go on from one? organism to outside itself to determine that, oh, okay, if I uh, release this compound, the other organism will take it up and 
do something beneficial for me? Like, how could there within, be that uh, that knowledge that this will work? Within within the population, it binds to a certain protein at the surface of the of the cell, and that signals the stress inward. Now, oxidative stress plays a major role in 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 their daily life, I would say, and can also be used to combat these blooms, but this is a different story. We can go into it if you're interested in it. Is, uh, we, can, we can use the oxidative stress, which... Yeah, that would be great because algal blooms are a big problem. So, yeah, let me know your thoughts on how this can be used. Yeah, that uh, that is a... Well, I wasn't going to talk about it, but a student of mine uh, Dr. Moshe El developed a fascinating system there. The point here, we do have this serious problem of blooms and what, what people are doing is using a huge amount of either copper salts or hydrogen peroxides, both with, with the impact, severe impact on the ecology. Now, what Moshe El did or does, uh, he formed a company that will... I suppose we, we won't go into that de- commercialized aspect, but but the biological aspect. What you do, what, what you do there is you induce the uh, oxidative stress, and consequently, the organism, if you if you do it correctly, the organism enter a so-called programmed cell death. I'll give you an example. We we teach the students that if an organism acquired ability to, for instance, detoxify hydrogen peroxide, it can, it can fight back and it can survive well and it, is, it has advantage under oxidative stress. But this is terribly wrong. If you take a chlamydomonas cell, for instance, and you, you want to kill the cell by, by hydrogen peroxide, it would take something between 5 and 10 millimolar of hydrogen peroxide to kill the chlamydomonas cell. But if you take a quarter of a millimolar, you treat it with a quarter of a millimolar and come back after four to six hours with another quarter or half a millimolar, altogether less than one millimolar, at least 50% of the cells will die will die activating a programmed cell death. Programmed cell death is a genetically controlled mechanism whereby the cell uh, altruistically kill itself. There are quite a number of examples there during development. If you look at your fingers, for instance, the skin that was between your fingers was perished because of activation of of a programmed cell death. And therefore, you have your fingers, not like like whatever. Oh, webbing. So, if you the the what Moshe Arel did was to place the peroxide, encapsulate it in hydrophobic hydrophobic uh, component, and consequently, it floats at the surface of the water, releasing the the hydrogen peroxide very very slowly. So when the mycocystis, for instance, or other uh, blue-green alga uh, are exposed for, for a longer time to a very low level of peroxide, what you get is activation of the PCD. 
And consequently, the population dies out, not directly by, by a, a little dose of hydrogen peroxide, but using a, a much lower concentration, a sublittle concentration that activate the death. So it can come to the, to the water body and treat it with a very, very low level of, of uh, either copper sulfate that does the same, or hydrogen peroxide, and, and eliminate the cyanobacteria, which are far more sensitive to oxidative stress than, than green alga. I can explain to you why there is a very good reason for that, that cyanobacteria is more sensitive to, to oxidative stress than, than green alga, for instance. Well, what are, but, I, mean, I think there probably would be unintended effects. You know, how long would you need to put this low level of peroxide into a lake or a, you know, an area that has an algal bloom and yeah. what would be the secondary effects? You, you, you see the effect within less than 24 hours. He did it in quite a number of places by now, in a lake in Ohio, in, in, in uh, several places in China. The beauty there is that the, the other alga are not affected. And because of what I mentioned, it's because of the very low dose that is being used for a longer duration. And, and as a result, what you, if you follow, for instance, the chlorophyll level, the chlorophyll level decays a bit because of the death of the cyanobacteria, but the green alga that are there are taking over. And now they compete with the cyanobacteria. And for instance, a, a lake in Ohio they treated, if I'm not mistaken, sometime end of July, uh, there was no, no bloom anymore for the rest of the season. And people were quite happy about it because for the first time in a few years, they could jump into the water and consume that water. So it is, it is a, a very novel, very clever way a, to to avoid the ecological impact of the high toxic uh, such as copper high dose of copper uh, and and hydrogen peroxide with copper what people did was so far is since the copper rain uh, is is much much uh, you know its specific gravity is way over that of water it just sink to to the to the bottom but he, by encapsulating it, it floats on the water, even move with the wind, with the, with the scums of the cyanobacteria. Quite, quite clever way of doing it. And uh, well, yeah, that's excellent. So, what, yeah, maybe maybe last question for now. What's um, why is the uh, cyanobacteria more or less uh, resistant to this than the other forms of life? Yeah. Well, they are not. They are more sensitive to peroxide. There is, there is a very good reason for that. It is in if you take higher plants or green alga, and you, and there is excess electrons coming from photosystem to after absorbing light energy, and there is not enough CO2 to fix at the end of 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 the path. So so they are CO2 limited. A plant with underwater stress closes its stomachs and it is limited with CO2 supply. And it is, it is a matter of, of the, of the donor and the acceptor. The, the photosynthesis, the reaction center 
releases many more electrons that can be used to reduce CO2, which is not there. So they go to oxygen. In higher plants and green alga, it is so-called the Meller reaction, uh, the name of Meller. Um, it, is, it forms hydrogen peroxide. So evolutionary speaking, a, quite a number of different mechanisms evolved in green alga and higher plants to detoxify the hydrogen peroxide, the singlet oxygen, the superoxide, and, and the hydrogen peroxide at the end of the day. In cyanobacteria, they, they have a different way of, of transferring the electrons to, to, to uh, oxygen. A student of mine, uh, Yael Hellman, discovered it back in 2003. They, they use a protein so-called FLV. It's, it is, uh, never mind the, the exact name. These proteins take up the four electrons of, of coming from the reaction center and convert it to oxygen in water directly without releasing uh, active oxygen species, such as what I mentioned, superoxide, uh, dismutase. Uh, activities are not necessary there. Hydrogen peroxide is not formed. So evolutionary speaking, the cyanobacteria are limited in their ability to detoxify hydrogen peroxide, and therefore they are more sensitive. So you can use a very low level of hydrogen peroxide to kill them, much lower than than needed for instancing. Yeah. Well, very good, well, Aaron. We're almost out of time. What What's next in terms of uh, your studies and your students' studies? What um, now that you've seen some of these mechanisms? What's next for you to look at? I'll say two two different things. The one thing I'm really, really proud about is the very large number of of students of mine that uh, got uh, independent academic research uh, positions. And uh, I'm collaborating with quite a number of them still. The one thing to do is to gain a better understanding of the metabolic flexibility that the chlorella that I mentioned before is using in order to be able to grow that fast. Because one of the main questions here is what sets the the ceiling on the growth rate of a photosynthetic organism. That is, this is the main question that I'm I'm dealing with quite quite these days. This the second question, and actually the mission, I think is to get rid of these uh, toxic blooms and to reestablish, or if you wish, to reset the ecological health of, uh, of, of the lakes. It is, it is we need to, to uh, I would put it this way, to make the Chinese people reuse the lake's water, get rid of the bottled water that they use, and and uh, reset the lakes. If you you know, I just came well, luckily, but two months ago before the coronavirus, I visited China. It's it's terrible there. I was there for quite a number of times. Yeah. It's terrible there. The lakes are contaminated with with blue green alga, and yeah. they don't know what to do about it. It is true. That the that the organisms uh, depend on the nutrients and there is excess of nutrients 
and they, they won't grow without the nutrients, but it would take hundreds of years to get rid of the nutrients in these lakes. And wow. the Chinese people do need the solution the day before yesterday. So if, if we, we can come up with a good way of doing it, and I think we do, that will, that, that will help a lot. So, well, Aaron, thank you for uh, for coming. I know you're speaking to me from Israel and you know not from a major city area, so, so I appreciate uh, you're looking into this stuff. Some people would think it's obscure, but it's it's very important and it has very important consequences. So I appreciate you being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for talking for this discussion this evening. It was fun talking to you, and uh, I hope it helped a lot to people to understand where we are, both in the desert. Well, when- Aspect for, and for, for, um, for people listening, how can they, you know, you said you have many students, how can they find out um, if they have a problem in their area with, you know, algal blooms? How can they read papers or get in touch with uh, you or your students to learn more? You know, I find it, it is, I really think it's our mission to to get rid of these blooms and I'll be willing, if they don't flood me too much, I'll be willing to to talk to people, to answer emails, uh, and help as much as I can. Because, you know, I'm facing quite a number of cases where people pay awful lot of money for nothing. And... Uh, offer solutions that don't work? No, the solutions don't work, and, and mm. the promises are without any basis. And that's that makes me furious about it. Really, it is unbelievable what people do. I don't think it is very surprising. But this is I I, I right. wasn't I wasn't aware of it before. Really. Well, very good. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com.